Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Tonight we continue the discussion about the escalating war between Russia and Ukraine. And Olga, that leads to our, our next question. It comes from Sasha Gillies Lakakis. Yeah, thank you, guys. Um, so, as someone who comes from the Russian community here in Australia, I've been pretty outraged by the narrative created by our media depicting the Ukraine as the good guy and Russia as the bad guy. Believe it or not, there are a lot of Russians here and around the world that support what Putin uh, is doing in the Ukraine, myself included. Uh, since 2014, uh, the Ukrainian government, together with Nazi groups like the Azov Battalion, have besieged the Russian populations in the Donbass, killing an estimated 13,000 people, Can I... according to the United Nations. That's late. That's yeah. late. Could I finish? Just, just quick, quick, quickly finish, and then, and then we'll come to yeah, that yeah. and put that to the panel. So my, my question is, you know, where was your outpouring of grief and concern for those thousands of mostly Russians? Okay. Something has been bothering me, I have to admit, you know, since we had Sasha's question earlier about Russia, and it's been playing on my mind, and, Sasha, people are dying, and I understand you wanted to ask your question about is there some reasoning for this, but you supported what's happening, hearing that people are dying, and can I just say I'm just not comfortable with you being here? Could, could you please leave? I've, I've been... It's really... No, Sasha, I'm sorry. You, you, you can ask a question. You can ask a question, but we cannot advocate violence. I should have asked you to leave then. It's been playing on my mind, and I'm sorry, but I have to ask you to leave. Please. OK, would I, could I...? No, 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 please, please, please. Just, 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 just out of respect. Just, no, please, we're not having the conversation, Sasha. We, we can't have people advocating violence. And I should have asked you to leave. It's been playing on my mind. I wanted to have a, a proper conversation about these things, but I have to ask you to leave. I'm really sorry. It's live television. You think about these things. It's really been troubling me that we can have a conversation and we can look at where, where, where the arguments are and we can try to look at the sides of the argument. We can't have, have that, and I'm, I'm sorry. It should have happened earlier. Okay, thank you. Um, and again, uh, apologies for the disruption earlier. That's all we have time for. And in our One Side to Every Story, Corporate Media Controlled Information Terrorism Watch episode this week, a young audience member on the live TV Australian talk show Q&A is thrown out for merely asking a question when called upon. But Sasha Gillies Lakakis is apparently only the latest victim in a neo-McCarthyism, are you now or have you ever been, demanding of, in some cases, actual public loyalty denunciation regarding NATO's war on everything Russian during this Ukraine conflict. Counting as well, cancel culture performing artists, conductors, and opera stars being fired from Western concert halls along with the banning of Tchaikovsky music, unless they publicly denounce their native Russia. And along with that, what's going on in the third world as well, where Internet providers have blocked the broadcasting of RT on air and online? Here's one reaction from prominent South African politician and anti-apartheid activist Tokyo Sexwali. Well, we are receiving media because we're not just Africa, we're part of the global community. So we get news from everywhere, all international networks, BBC, CNN, Sky, and all types of things. We are disappointed with the fact that uh, RT has been shut down. Let me tell you why I say that. We as South Africans, we as Democrats from this part of the world, Mandela's people everywhere on the continent, we have learned and have been inspired as students of many revolutions. All these other revolutions which ushered in very many ideas, particularly the idea or democracy, peace, and justice. And one of the central pillars that we have learned, that's why we're surprised to see the manner in which the AU is, 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 is acting, and Britain in particular and others. These are the people who taught us about the freedom of the media and the press. Now, the silencing of the voices of others. You asked me a question, are we getting news? Yes, we are getting news, but we are shocked 
with the silencing because what we're experiencing is the breakdown of the international diplomatic and human architecture and infrastructure. Everything seems to be breaking apart. I mean, if we hear RT, what is wrong with that? Why do you think RT will change my views? Why do you think listening to BBC, which owned, which is owned by the government of Britain, will change my views? We also are able to make up our own minds, so people should not decide for us. And on another note regarding cancel culture and the current escalating war on free speech and how they've gotten rid of everything Russian way faster than all those Confederate statues in this country, we pose the question to our next guest about not only Internet providers, but now Spotify, it seems, purging anyone with an anti-war or RT show from that media conglomeration, even as they protect the racist rants of comedian-turned-podcaster Joe Rogan. Coming up is likewise comic-turned-podcaster Stuttering John Melendez, who has something to say about that Joe Rogan controversy, cancel culture, and his own controversial history on The Howard Stern Show. And that prank call to Donald Trump four years ago, when Trump was still president, and prior to the storming of Capitol Hill. Discussing in that prank call the re-election somehow of disgraced U.S. Senator Bob Menendez and those kids in cages. First, a little of that prank call from our conversation back then with Melendez, then John Melendez. So you're calling Hi, Bob. Hey, how are you? How are you? Congratulations on everything. We're proud of you. Congratulations. Great job. You went through a tough, tough situation. And I don't think a very fair situation, but congratulations. Thank you so much. And, you know, I'm sorry to bother you, Mr. President, but obviously my constituents are giving me a lot of beef about this immigration thing. I know that you did something really noble, but, you know, by trying to, you know, get the kids back with their families. But I have to answer to them. What can I tell them that you're going to do in moving forward? Bob, let me, let me just tell you, I want to be able to take care of the situation every bit as much as anybody else at the top level. I'd like to do the larger solution rather than the smaller solution. You know, we do them, they're doing them step by step. I think we could do the whole thing. You know, I have a good relationship with the party. You have a good relationship with the party. And I think we could do a real immigration bill. We have to have security at the, at the border. We have to have it. I mean, look, you got 60% of the country, they've got to have security at the border. And that's a good issue for the Democrats too, Bob. It's not like it's good for you or good for me. It's good for both of us. People oh, no, I, are I, tired I, I, of, you know, of the problems. No, I Stuttering John Melendez. 
phoning into, well, Donald Trump on Air Force One, sort of, engaging in a rather strange conversation with stuttering John impersonating the consecutively disgraced, acquitted, and re-elected corruption and bribed plague pro-Cuban blockade Jersey U.S. Senator Bob Menendez, with Trump on the other end of the line congratulating a fellow conniver politician, even if a Democrat, and stuttering John, meanwhile, subsequently sought by the Secret Service. More about that coming up, with stuttering John phoning into Arts Express as, well, just himself this time, to explain, and to talk about his rather irreverent career path from Howard Stern to The Tonight Show. This is my conundrum with Howard Stern, and I have the same dilemma with Donald Trump as I had with my father, how my father was physically abusive and would beat the crap out of me. Comedian, radio guy, TV writer, and apparently prolific prankster in a conversation about phoning up Trump on Air Force One and what went down with follow-up visits from the Secret Service. Along with Stern, referred to as, quote, Stern as a mean, stingy, megalomaniacal boss. And quote, we didn't have a guest and we just decided let's just call the president you know, because I had issues I wanted to discuss, immigration reform and getting the kids out of the cages. Hi, Prairie. How are you? Hello and welcome, Stuttering John Melendez. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay. Now, your podcast mission states taking down the hypocritical, fascist, corrupt party known as the GQP. Please elaborate. Well, GQP stands for QAnon. You have Congress people like Marjorie, uh, you know, Charlie Green, and and you know, and uh, uh, Lauren Boebert, and you know, you know, like a, I hate, I I would like to say a fringe element of the Republican Party, but it's it, it's become the Republican Party. I mean, you know, just you know, just to elaborate, I had Congressman Eric Swalwell on on my show, and I said, has the Republican Party become the white supremacist party? And he went, yeah, because, you know, look at the insurrection. You had, for the first time in our history, you had the Confederate flag being wielded inside our Capitol building. The Confederate flag, which is a representative of racism and bigotry and hate. And this is what, and then you have people like Kevin McCarthy, who you know, at first denounce the attack, but now, you know, you have Donald Trump willing to pardon these people. You know, like, you know, I mean, it really is unbelievable. I've, I never thought in my lifetime I, I would see a party that is, you know, embellished in treason. Have you ever thought that you have, you know, a party that is embracing the enemy? And as a podcaster yourself, what can you say about the Joe Rogan controversy? Uh, I pulled my podcast off of Spotify, and I did because I think that Joe Rogan has a responsibility to, you know, not be, you know, an anti-vaxxer and, and having people on to promote, you know, anti-vaxxing and then, you know, and instead promote ivermectin, which is essentially a... a a horse worm. I I think if you're gonna, you know, you know, b- provide false information where people he's got five million fans, and some of them just might listen and not get vaccinated. Some some may die, and I think that's uh, you know that's not a good thing. And with your uninhibited approach to your comedy, what you do politically and otherwise, would you say you've ever been a victim of cancel culture? Yes, I think everybody has. I mean, I think, I think, I think Jesus was the first one who was a victim of cancel culture. I mean, it's been going on for years, and uh, of course, I mean, I, I do stand up comedy. I, I've had to clean up things because uh, you know everything is now being viewed under you know a, a microscope. It, it's, it's very hard, you know, in today's age, and uh, you know, it's not an easy time to be a, uh, a comedian or, or a broadcaster. Yes. And how would you say, or would you say, 15 seasons with Howard Stern, warts and all, changed your life? Well, it, 
it, you know, I, I'm grateful to Howard. It put me on the map. It, you know, it, you know, it gave me fame. And, uh, you know, and, and, and you know, ultimately, you know, I, I, I was able to get to the Tonight Show, which was a dream of mine to work in television. I'm an NYU film and television major. So, I mean, Howard started on the air when I, when my wife was like six months pregnant. He told me to abort the kid because I'm not fit to be a, a father. And he told he told my wife the same thing, you know, when she was pregnant. So that explains the mean part. The stingy part, I mean, we never got any, you know, like he, like he didn't like take care of his people like he should have. Um, you know, when it came to our paychecks, when it came to going to bat for us, to fight for salaries. And as far as the megalomaniacal, anything that we got outside of the show, Howard would remind you it was all because of him. And even when Billy West, the voice of Bugs Bunny, and has had a very successful cartoon career, when Billy West left the show, I'll never forget in the studio, um, during a commercial break, Howard saying, why would Billy leave? Doesn't he realize the only reason he gets any work is because of this show? So, you know, which is such a narrow-minded thing to say, like, like, like all of us didn't have any talent, do anything other than what Howard had us do. So there it, it lies the megalomaniacal aspect of that. Uh, I'm grateful to him. I, I, I'm proud of, of the work I did. And what about your prank call to Donald Trump? <laughs> you know, that was, it was such... Um, a lark, like we were, we were doing my podcast, the Suttering John podcast, and we didn't have a guest, and we just decided let's just call the president, you know, because I had issues that I wanted to discuss. I, I wanted to, to I, you know, I wanted to discuss immigration reform, getting the kids out of the cages, and I also wanted to, to discuss his Supreme Court justice pick. So I said, all right, I'm, I'm going to call the president, and this is the story of my life. I mean, who would think? That, that I am, like, stuttering John, you know, calling from Chatsworth, California, is going to be able to get the president on the phone in less than two hours, get Jared Kushner and Donald Trump to call me from Air Force One. I mean, it's just the story of my life. I, I don't know. I think it's just, you know, it, you know, if you believe you could do something, then you could do it. And I was yeah. able to do it, and I had a five-minute conversation with Trump about immigration and Supreme Court justice, and we had this conversation the whole time. He thought I was a, uh, a senator from New Jersey, but you know, I, I you know, I got to accomplish everything that I I set out to do. And what was that like being visited by Secret Service agents after your Trump prank call? Sounds like something out of a James Bond movie. Yes, it was. I couldn't believe it. I, I you know, I I was just doing my podcast, and then we decided to prank Donald Trump, and and. It became global news. I, I had no idea that you know that the, the Secret Service would get involved, but I did have to talk to them, and you know, and then they, they wouldn't tell me if they were going to arrest me or not. So believe it or not, I hired uh, uh, Michael Avenatti to be my attorney, and then, and then it all went away. <laughs> and what can you say about your very unusual ventures into interviewing public figures, from Ringo Starr to the Dalai Lama? I think it was a great comedy bit. I think it inspired people like Ollie G and and Triumph the Insult, you know, comic dog Bob Smigel. And uh, I am going to be going to Washington D.C. and do the same thing, Stuttering John 2.0, for my podcast in April or May, where I'm going to go back to asking those questions to our politicians. Any particular politicians you have in mind, or do you want to keep it a secret? No, you know, every one of them, it doesn't matter if they're Democrat or Republican, but I would love to talk to a Kevin McCarthy or a Marjorie, you know, Taylor Green. I mean, I would love to talk to them. And, you know, and I've already, you know, got, you know, some intel on where they hang out. So I will be doing this. I got to don my fake beard and mustache again. And as someone who's been physically challenged with stuttering, and you've also been in a number of films, how do you feel about the hiring of actors who are not disabled to impersonate disabled characters instead of hiring authentic actors? Well, I I don't have a problem with that. I mean, I think, you know, 
I don't know. You know, you know, like, and that's kind of like a cancel culture thing again. I, I think that if you know, if somebody is a great actor, like you had Tom, uh, you know, Tom Hanks playing, you know, a mentally challenged person in Forrest Gump. Now, I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, he won the Academy Award. There's a reason why he was cast. I mean, he's a great actor, so I don't personally have a problem. With it. Although I will tell you, when Paul Giamatti was playing a stutter in an M. Night Shyamalan movie. He was on The Tonight Show, and I said, Paul, do you need any advice? I could coach you on how, because he played a stuttering character. Uh, and he goes, no, I got it covered. And then when I saw the movie, he's stuttering when he talks to himself, which is virtually impossible. And he's stuttering when he's yelling, which is virtually impossible. <laughs> so, so I wish that he would have taken my advice. And is there anything else coming up for you? Any books, movies, or prank calls? Uh, just, just I'm, I'm just doing the podcast, but I will be doing the interviews again. And uh, you know, it's always interesting. So, uh, uh, stay tuned. I live the charm life, and who knows what tomorrow will bring. Okay, thank you so much, John, for calling into our show. Thank you so much, Prairie. It's been a pleasure. Bye. Hello, Arts Express. This is Adam Beach giving you a shout-out in New York, New York. And I'm very much tied into my cultural identity and protecting that. And I find when you look at the non-Indigenous, when they get involved in the traditional aspect of things, they usually steal it for a monetary value, whether it's artifacts, whether it's ceremony lodges, sweat lodges, or taking their own interpretation of what a Navajo song should be and, you know, how they should dress and, yeah, protect that. Coming up next on the show, we'll take stock of 12 months of unfortunate rubbish. It's finally time to stand firm and knock some of the most indiscriminate dreck in entertainment. Let's scream into the god-awful abyss, having swum in the cinematic sewage and survived. With the Academy Awards taking place later this month, Inframe outs Paul of the Pauls with rants from his hit list, of the worst movies out there this past year. Welcome to Inframe Out's Year in Film, where we take stock of 12 months of spectacular cinema and unfortunate rubbish. It's finally time to stand firm and knock some of the most indiscriminate dreck in entertainment down a peg or two. 
let's scream into the god-awful abyss. Having swum in the cinematic sewage and survived, here are entries of our worst films of 2021. On July 16, 1945, having witnessed the awesome power of the first atomic bomb, its chief architect Robert Oppenheimer remarked, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I wonder what Space Jam A New Legacy's director Malcolm D. Lee thought when he rotoscoped Yosemite Sam into Casablanca. A New Legacy is dead behind the eyes cinema a vacant, thousand-yard stare of an experience that feels more like an aggressive marketing pitch than a movie. The only thing more hideous than its early 2000s webcomic animation is its fingers-down-the-throat CGI, all rendered with a slick-to-the-touch cynicism that drips from every frame like grease from a gas station hot dog. Then there's Space Jam 2 colonic irrigation's utter lack of self-awareness. This is a plot about an evil algorithm that wants to homogenize all art into a uniform ecosystem of soulless content delivery, released as a cross-brand promotional tool by a company that is currently trying to homogenize all art into a uniform ecosystem of soulless content delivery. A dust bowl of originality where LeBron James has to learn the lesson that shortcuts are more important than hard work, and that the best way to win a game of basketball is to cheat. I don't have a clever sign-off, all I can say is Space Jam A New Legacy made me miserable. Inconsolably, despairingly miserable. Music may have been pipped to the post for the worst film of the year, but it is undoubtedly the most despicable. Listen, here's the thing, I don't even care about AIDS. I don't care. A glitter-glued, doe-eyed piece of optimistic drivel, music claims to be a love letter to the ASD community. In reality, it's an anthrax-stuffed envelope of dangerous misinformation and contemptible ignorance about the spectrum of autism. Strobe lights, rattling volume, rapid-fire edits, and luminous colours render huge chunks of the movie unsafe for those who suffer from sensory overload, audio aversion, or light sensitivity, meaning that music is unsuitable for its main character and many members of its target audience. The fact that these abrasive musical numbers were only added because the studio offered writer-director Sia an extra $10 million if she'd willingly sell out the ASD community may be one of the most demonstrably hateful acts of greed I've ever seen. And so I turned it into a musical and then we got loads more money. <laughs> and that's before we discuss the fact that music preaches the violent, prone restraint of autistic kids when they get upset. A universally condemned act of barbarism that has in reality killed multiple children. The rest is just an insipid Oscar bait clunker, anchored by Maddie Ziegler's twitching, guttural mockery of a performance. A turn she gave under duress as Sia encouraged her to lean further and further into the realms of inexcusable. Shame on Sia, shame on music, and shame on me for giving this abhorrent garbage one second of my time. Many of you will never have heard of Vanquish, and to that I say, ignorance is bliss. For as fatally flawed, appallingly plotted, scabbed up and stupid all the other entries on this list have been, most, if not all of them, function in the most basic sense. Vanquish doesn't even clear the lowest bars of competence, and Plum's depths of ineptitude I've rarely seen. The opening credits are nearly seven minutes long. A PowerPoint montage of newspaper clippings and ear puke exposition to make up for the fact that the remaining hour plus of this parade doesn't actually have a story to tell. 
Without exaggeration, this is how the whole ballet of bull plays out. Ruby Rose collects money. Something goes wrong and she kills everyone. We watch her ride a motorbike to Morgan Freeman's house to drop off the cash. Then Ruby Rose goes to collect the next lot of money. And so on and so forth until Freeman blows himself up. We cut to credits and I start smashing my shin bone with a hammer just to see if I can still feel something. Freeman is housebound and confined to a wheelchair for the duration, only because it allowed him to shoot all his scenes in a couple of days, and he's blatantly reading every line of this Blood in the Stool screenplay from a cue card held up next to the camera. There's no purpose, reason, drive, or propulsion to anything. I didn't feel like I was watching a film, more like I was making myself an accomplice in some elaborate scam. A duplicitous Fugazi only intended as a tax write-off or money laundering scheme. It's all a Fugazi. You know what a Fugazi is? No, Fugazi. It's a fake. Yeah, Fugazi, Fugazi. It's a wazi, it's a woozy, it's a... The editing is marred by cross-dissolve, after cross-dissolve, after cross-dissolve, after cross-dissolve, while every spurt of colour correction comes in two flavours. Mountain Dew explosion or strip club for the criminally insane. On the rare occasion that shots are both correctly framed and in focus, it still looks like a promotional Snapchat video for the synthwave band you've never heard. For all these reasons, and oh so many more, Vanquish is Inframe Out's worst film of 2021. Keep making your jokes because I'm about to send you to the worst place in the world. Your Instagram account? You know, I'm really starting to not like you. While 2021 has in many ways felt like a terrible remix of 2020 and a cold reminder of just how stupid we are as a species, at least there have been plenty of brilliant movies to bask in and terrible trash to take aim at for some sweet fleeting catharsis. Spooky, right? If you have more than 12 images on the internet, I can send your mom a video of you sexing a goat. I'm not saying I'm gonna do that, I'm just saying I could do that. If I wanted to, if I had enough time and enough pictures. Red Notice is a sugar pill suppository served up as an antidote to the blockbuster blues. A $200 million placebo of bland set pieces, ghastly green screen, and frictionless globe trotting that may as well be an ad for an airport. Ryan Reynolds plays yet another motor-mouthed Ryan Reynolds type, because that's all the likeable gent has done since Deadpool took off, Dwayne Johnson phones it in like he's calling in sick to his own movie, and Gal Gadot continues to cement her status as the Israeli Tommy Wiseau, and potentially the least emotive actress alive. They're all trapped and tripping over one another in a clumsy, disjointed rhythm where every lowest common denominator word adds nothing but a series of jokes that don't land, or a laborious succession of scenes in which people in expensive formal wear just stand still and say the plot out loud. Red Notice is such a corporate wad of overpriced nothingness, it makes the Da Vinci Code look like national treasure and makes National Treasure look like Indiana Jones. As it dawned on me that this somehow cost more to make than the entirety of my top 10 best of the year list combined, I was shaken. When Ryan Reynolds did a Borat impression in the year of our Lord 2021, That's a nice. I was defeated. And by the time Ed Sheeran showed up and cried out, it's Darren, bitch! I longed for the heat death of the universe. Having sat on a shelf for two years after its first cut was deemed unreleasable, actually sitting through Chaos Walking only confirms that grim first impression. The dystopian hook here is that all the male characters' thoughts surround them as a twitching fog and blare out through the speakers in yammering yelps for all to hear which is a conceit that makes for an extremely unpleasant watch. And yet it never once feels like anything important is being said. Is it the second wave? 
It turns out, Chaos Walking as a title is incredibly apt, what with its disorderly gait and lead-footed pace. This is a strained, slapped-together mess of concepts that never click, chemistry that never gels, and gorgeous people romping through the desaturated woods looking for something to happen. All buoyed by a cast who are only here to bolster their bank account. None more so than Daisy Ridley, who has proven time and time again that she must deliver all of her lines with an overly urgent stop-start high school drama club cadence. Well, at least you get to see Mads Mikkelsen ride a horse. Which is something, I guess? You've really outdone yourself, Angela. You go. Go and don't you come back. Don't ever come back, you hear me? Go! Neil Blomkamp, having watched the diminishing returns of his blunt social commentary bottom out with the deeply confused Chappie, has returned with Demonic, a low-budget, zero-intellect horror in which an estranged daughter tries to exorcise the demon in her mother's brain with the power of virtual reality. Because maybe Blomkamp binged The Cell, The Lawnmower Man, and Existence during lockdown and wanted to throw his VR goggles into the ring. The only thing scary or shocking here is just how amateurish everything comes across. What with its community college used as a stand-in for a hospital and reams of expository dialogue delivered in gale force winds. This looks and feels more like a Neil Breen joint than anything made by the guy who shot this. As it rolls from its dreary beginnings into a final act with all the enthusiasm of a flat-tired cement truck, it almost explodes into a moment of brilliant stupidity when a gaggle of weaponized priests start flexing in their frocks as if Predator was cast entirely with clergymen. But then we just cut to the aftermath where they've all been slaughtered off-screen, proving definitively that Demonic can't even be accidentally interesting. As for the rest, you'd get more frights and thrills filing your taxes. With that, it's time to say goodbye to another 365 days, and move on to all the fresh delights and miserable moments 2022 has to offer. Until next time, this is In Frame Out. And speaking of Hollywood, what about the portrayals of teachers in movies? Here's a deep dive into a more genuine depiction, Mr. Bachman and his class. With connections to art, math, music, and life, Peter Brook's The Empty Space, and immigrant workers in factories originally built as Nazi war munitions camps. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Every few years, Hollywood comes out with a new film about some hero public school teachers, starting from the granddaddy of them all to Sir with Love, on to Mr. Holland's Opus, on to Dangerous Minds, and of course, we're leaving aside the idiot comedies about teachers and substitute teachers. These films purport to tell the true stories of teachers in school life, where in Hollywood fashion they wrap everything up neatly in two hours. And as a former public high school teacher, I admit to finding these films fun and inspiring in a junk food kind of way. Most of them depict the life of a public school teacher about as accurately as Indiana Jones depicts the life of an archaeologist. Even the film I consider the best of the lot, Stand and Deliver, about California math teacher Jaime Escalante, gets the main thing terribly wrong about the life of a typical high school teacher. Inevitably, those films focus on only one classroom and only one set of students. Now, that's understandable from a dramatic point of view, but it elides over probably the most overwhelming factor in the life of a high school teacher, the fact that most secondary school teachers teach an average of at least five classes every day, and sometimes six, and the number of students they teach in a day can be upwards of 150. 
That means if a teacher spends no more than three minutes per student in an evening, grading, homework, or tests, that's 450 minutes, or seven and a half hours of time. Yikes! You can tell I was a math teacher. That's the reality that's never captured in a Hollywood movie. Well, the reality of time for a lower-grade teacher, however, is quite different. The lower-grade teacher does spend the entire day with a single class, so films about teachers of younger students tend to be more honest in that they more accurately reproduce the teacher's context, though for some reason there are very few serious Hollywood films about younger students. So two of the best films I've seen about teachers were non-Hollywood films, foreign documentaries about teachers who taught younger children. The first was a French film called To Be and To Have, released about two decades ago about a rural French teacher who taught in a kind of one-room schoolhouse. But my new favorite teaching film is a recently released German documentary titled Mr. Bachman and His Class. Now, the Mr. Bachman of the documentary is a sixth-grade teacher named Dieter Bachmann, who teaches in a public school in the industrial city of Stadthallendorf, where many immigrants from Turkey, Romania, Bulgaria, Morocco, and other countries have come to work in the shops and factories of the city. Factories that we later learn were originally built up as Nazi war munition camps. Mr. Bachmann teaches his group of 20 boys and girls German, art, math, music, and life. The film starts off in the dark. At first you think it's going to be some film noir, but soon it's clear what the director is up to. In the dark, we follow a group of young students getting on the school bus on a cold day at the beginning of the winter school semester. It's so early that the sun hasn't risen yet. Mr. Bachman is driving on the highway to school also early in the morning for a 7 a.m. school start. The students come into the classroom noisily, and Mr. Bachman orders them to re-enter quietly. We see a classroom with tables and chairs, and tucked in corners are guitars and drums and books and clay sculptures. Mr. Bachman himself is a grizzled 65-year-old wearing a knit hat, gray hoodie sweatshirt, and a t-shirt over the hoodie, looking a lot like Willie Nelson. He starts the class by telling a story of what the instruments had been doing the night before in the classroom. The red guitar was declaring its love to the table. He then asks a student to pick up the story. And one by one, the students start to weave their tale in their non-native German, creating an imaginative story. One girl says, I think it would be more realistic if the table and the guitar were taking advantage of one another. That's what happens in relationships. Then other students pick up the story. With each child, you see Mr. Bachman encouraging the new language in their mouths, praising, telling jokes, asking questions, making deliberate double entendres to wake up the boys in the back, drawing out the shy ones. Then he picks up a guitar and hands another guitar out to one of the students. Another gets on drums and another starts singing. They've begun their school day. So in the course of the film, we see Mr. Bachman patiently working with each student one by one to teach them to listen to each other, teach them to help one another. He's a man who seemingly has nothing to lose. A misfit himself, he's now at the end of his teaching career. 
He didn't think he would make it this far without being thrown out himself, but somehow he has. And there are no car chases or dramatic stories of drugs and weapons or gang confrontations in this film. What director Maria Speth does is more difficult. She captures the quality of relationship and trust, how it is a moment-to-moment, one-at-a-time thing, built within the confines of a safe space. And he's committed to building a classroom community. After a language exam, Bachman suggests that the students who did well on the exam should help those who failed for the next time. And a boy, Jamie, refuses. Why should I have to, Jamie protests. Steffi should have studied harder. Bachman stops the class, and he has a long discussion with Jamie. Why would you not want to help someone who is your friend, he asks. Jamie digs in deeper and says it's the girl's fault for failing. Bachman says to Jamie that it's not her fault, but Jamie continues to insist. Bachman says that he is telling Jamie as an adult that he knows it's not Steffi's fault. She's new to the country. While you were born here, it's harder for her. But Jamie keeps digging in. Bachman then goes round the classroom and asks each student to tell the story of why their parents came to the country, and they all talk of discrimination and the wish to seek a better life. They all get to feel a sense of themselves and how they are all in the same figurative boat. Even the now sheepish Jamie has to admit that the story of his parents, who came from Romania, was much the same. This film, I should tell you now, is three and a half hours long. I didn't want to scare you off at first. But it is a very good choice by the director, Maria Speth, to allow that length. The method of the film is the method of the teacher. Patience. The filmgoer gets to experience the whole arc of a school semester, its ups and downs, its sudden turns, its tedium, its excitement, its disappointment, and small victories that all play out over the course of many months. It's been said that most people overestimate what can be achieved in a week, but underestimate what can be achieved in a year. And the film confirms that view. Bachman is very aware of the rhythm of a school year and the rhythm of adolescent change. As the teachers are conferencing at the beginning of the semester, Bachman's colleagues have little confidence in some of his suggestions for later high school placement. But he's honest with his students and his colleagues and tells them that they have potential and that if they keep working, they will be ready in six months. And he's right. There is delight in watching the film to see how the students are evolving, to see how one shy girl who barely speaks later becomes so confident in her ability to tell a story and to persuade that she convinces her parents not to take her out of the school or to watch Mr. Bachman have a small conversation that opens up a student's eyes to a future possibility. That's when a young boy tells Bachman he wants to be a barber because barbers make good money and they get to work indoors. Bachman nods and says, maybe you could be a teacher. They work indoors too. And you can see that no one in the world had ever suggested that option to the boy. Even the uncooperative Jamie by the end becomes one of the community and is helping and joining in with others. There are so many small affecting scenes in this film, and it is in the vulnerability of children learning and growing. Bachman himself has doubts about his way of teaching. He laughs ruefully that he's the teacher who's known as not teaching any subject. It recalled to me a student of mine who was thinking of becoming a high school teacher who asked me if you have to really be in love with your subject. And I told him what an older colleague had told me. If you're teaching college, you must love your subject more than the student. But if you're teaching the younger grades, then you have to love your students more than your subject. That is Mr. Bachman's way. At the end of the year in the film, we see beautiful young men and women who have grown and learned to like themselves. That is truly the gift that Bachman has given. He's allowed discussion in a safe place. Each person's voice was important. These are cliches, but true. As the film comes to an end, 
we see the classroom being dismantled and the furniture loaded out because Mr. Bachman is retiring. The director lets Bachman's life remain something of a mystery. We know only that he has worked in the school for 17 years, his longest relationship, he laughs. We know that his ex-wife was a psychologist. We know that his parents were alcoholics and school was not something that interested him, but not too much more. And it may seem strange, but what this film reminded me most about was Peter Brook's brilliant book about theater called The Empty Space, where he talks about how any space, no matter how humble, can become a holy space. And at rare times it can be the same in a school. A classroom can also be a holy space if all the participants treat it as special. As the students take leave of their Mr. Bachman in the now empty space, one boy, Hassan, both teary-eyed and confident, on his way out, starts softly singing, Once there was a Mr. Bachman. And we see Mr. Bachman alone in his bare classroom as the film fades. Mr. Bachman and his class is available to stream on the movie platform. I highly recommend it. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. That's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.